Welcome to The War Room. Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener-supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. And oh, by the way, we will be rolling out YouTube episodes, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes, warroommedia.com. Now, let's get to the show. Mark, welcome to the War Room. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so the book title, I Feel, Therefore I Am, The Triumph Triumph of Woke Subjectivism, is your new book. came out on November 6th. We're going to link to that in the show notes at warroommedia.com. Um, woke... Wokeness, subjectivism, those are terms you get here thrown around. You've combined them into one. I'm curious, um, are you arguing that subjectivism has led to wokeness or vice versa, or they're just, they kind of have intersected somehow? Well, subjectivism is a very, very old idea in philosophy. Um, it tended to be regarded in a kind of um, dubious way by most trained thinkers. The problem is that ideas that are dubious have a way of taking hold in academia. And the premise of my book is that ideas that do take hold in academia, even the sillier ones, gradually seep out into the broader culture. And that's what's happened with wokeism, which is picked up on the, I'm going to throw in another fancy word here. It's picked up uh, the epistemology of subjectivism. And it's applied it to a variety of um, political issues. And the subjectivist epistemology makes the the um, politics invincible. And that becomes a problem when you're involved in the give and take political ideas in broader culture. Mm. Okay, well, let's talk about epistemology because that is a <laughs> – that's something that, that I think – Perhaps whatever side or issue you're on, you will hear people assert things that they know that quite fundamentally, um, if you were to really press them, they don't know. And so maybe first unpack epistemology uh, and then and then uh, for people who aren't familiar with that term uh, and then why you're saying that that it's uh, invincible, I think you said, or unbeatable. Yeah. Yeah. In epistemology is the study of the foundations of knowledge. It's the um, it's an attempt to address the question, how do we know what we know? And it entails a definition of truth in every case. And um, the traditional definition of truth is an alignment or a correspondence between what you believe and a reality that exists apart from what you believe. So in other words, if I say that um, there's a boat out on the Hudson River right now. What I'm saying is true only if in reality there is a boat out on the Hudson River right now. Um, The problem is that if you are off in your epistemology, you can go preposterously off in your beliefs. Uh, Let me... Let me give an example of what I mean by setting up something that's invincible, which I think wokeism is, uh, and I mean invincible in the worst possible way. Um, If I say that there's a crack team of ninjas following me around, 
your your first response may be to just dismiss that idea. But if I otherwise seem sane and reasonable, you may want to investigate it. So you set up, um, you know, very highly sensitive cameras with infrared lens, infrared capacities. You set up high powered microphones and you, you follow me around for a week to detect any trace of ninjas. And after a week, you come back to me and say, look, I've tested your hypothesis. I've tested your claim in every way I can think of. Uh, There are no ninjas. There's no evidence of ninjas following you. If at that point I respond, that just shows you how clever and sneaky those ninjas are. Then what I have is an, an an unfalsifiable belief. I'm making an unfalsifiable claim. Um, what the woke, what woke ideas share is this, this sort of problem of unfalsifiability. So in critical race theory, for example, which is a prime example of wokeism, the keynote claim of the 1619 project that the American revolution was fought in order to preserve slavery has been refuted six ways to Sunday, right? I mean, it's been refuted by historians across the political spectrum. It's refuted on the basis of empirical evidence or logic. It's been refuted every which way that a a, um, hypothesis can be refuted. But if the response to that is, well, that's just white historians or conservative historians or black historians acting white, refuting it, therefore their refutations are not valid, then there's no way to refute it. And again, that that line of thinking has gradually seeped out of academia, where it sustains things like ethnic studies, and it's made its way into the broader culture. And that's why you get something like the 1619 Project being assigned in public schools. Okay, so part of what you're getting at there is um, a circular logic, which is yes. yeah. So, so matter what you say, there's always a response. Um, but back, and so the the question at hand, and this is the epistemology thing, is quite interesting to me because um, I find quite often that people will boldly claim that we do or do not know something that we actually don't know. So take the ninja example; it's quite reasonable for someone to say there's no evidence of ninjas, and for us to all to say. At this time, there's no reason to believe there's ninjas, but that doesn't actually prove beyond all possibilities that there are no ninjas. Um, and yeah. so when you watch these debates about, and especially in the political realm, what happens is his positions are asserted. There is an investigation, a study, a report, etc. That's then presented as the gospel, despite the questions that are asked around it. And you kind of find yourself in this circular loop about, well, the report from this, the Senate committee said this, or the report from this said this, or the police said that. And it's like, well... Well, right. So, so I am, I'm kind of torn on how to handle this issue. So, because in, in popular discussion, it seems that you must take a definitive stance. Whereas if you took something and said, well, this issue right here at current time, the evidence suggests this, it doesn't, which that seems seem to be on a lot of issues for the general public because we don't have access to enough information. It seems that's more of where we should be, which is the evidence suggests this instead of saying, we know this to be true. Uh, would you, what are your thoughts yeah. on that? Well, all empirical knowledge is contingent to, to a, 
a minuscule, at least a minuscule degree. Although some empirical knowledge is so well established that you'd have to posit the intervention of like a Cartesian deceiver to say that that's still up for grabs. If I say that, um, I don't know, that Columbus sailed across the Atlantic Ocean in 1492, there's a possibility, remote though it is, that that didn't happen and that all the textbooks and all the historians and all the accounts have been faulty, but that's certainly not the way to bet. And our best evidence right now is that Columbus did sail across the Atlantic in 1492. That's really not up for grabs. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me let me uh, clarify. So yes, so 1492. I think we're all we're all there. The question would be: Is what was Columbus's motivations? Right. And that, yeah, yeah. And, th- and those questions are actually quite harder uh, to answer. Wh- whatever um, side or, or issue, th- those questions are a little bit more nuanced because it's not always clear. You don't know if his memoirs are the right thing to read or someone's interpretation of his, his actions. And so that's where the questions, I think, um, become a little bit more gray. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Um, and the... Um, in the question that I raised before about the motivations for the American Revolution, all you can do is is build an argument based on logic and evidence. You say, you know, you have this piece of evidence that doesn't work with your hypothesis, this piece of evidence that doesn't work, this piece. Logically, this, this, um, this way of thinking just doesn't jive with what we know from other fields, um, if all of that is brought to bear on the question, are you ever going to arrive at 100% absolute certainty about a question of motivations? The answer is no. But if your epistemology begins with the, the, the belief that bringing to bear logic and evidence on or to question a hypothesis is itself an act of oppression, then there's really nowhere to go in debate. Right. And so I would say um, if you took the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, the war in Iraq, it doesn't matter, the Ukraine and Russia invasion, it is impossible to know what Bob on 123 Main Street thinks about that because we don't have enough information about Bob's opinion. So you can't say we know what everyone thought. Or we know, because what you actually know, especially further back in history you go, is what the papers were writing, what the elites were talking about. So it's a very small subset of information that we have. And then you could go and formulate the opinions of this spectrum of noble opinions that you have, uh, then to start making some, some judgments about what they said. And so that's, that's far more reasonable. And it, it seems like uh, in this debate over history, um, and I like kind of breaking this down a little bit, because that my concern is... Um, you know, you think about someone like John Adams um, living in the South. I've heard people say, well, slavery, slavery was going to be abolished. It was eventually going to be abolished, but they just didn't have time to abolish it. And they'll quote this person here, that person there. And you go read someone like Adams and his wife and their correspondence about the issue of slavery. It's quite clear that they saw the issue clearly. They understood the argument against it. And it was being made on some level. And so when you point to these issues in history, um, you say, well, what do people think or what do they think? I don't know what everyone thought. I just know it's clear that prominent people at least understood 
the issues, and then you can start breaking down, um, you know, how pervasive they were, how, um, you know, were they actually being influential in those things? And so it, it seems like on one end of the spectrum to your point, which is to ask these questions, to talk about these questions um, is almost, uh, you know, an attack on, on modern people. And on the, other, on the other hand, it's, there's a sense in which, because you have this attack, there's a sense in which there wants to people want to defend history too strongly instead of letting the the breath of what was said actually try to stand on its own two feet while acknowledging that people a hundred years from now will look at back at us and go, well, you were crazy for thinking this, just like we look back a hundred years ago, they were crazy for thinking that. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, but to uh, again, I don't want to focus entirely on you know, the causes of the revolutionary. Yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. I'm just using it. Yes. But, but I think it is it's worth, it, it is worth dwelling on it a little bit more. Uh, we know what the leaders of the colonies believed they were doing um, when they decided to break from England. Uh, we know their motivations in their own words, if you believe they're being honest about their motivations. We know the the, um, the logic of, of things like Jefferson striking the um, the passage from the Declaration of Independence about King George bringing slavery to the world because he was afraid that I think it was Georgia and Carolina were going to not sign on to the Declaration if that happened. But you can go from there and say. Well, if Georgia and Carolina were not going to sign on to the Declaration of Independence, um, if that passage wasn't stricken, that means that they were not going to join in the revolution, which means they were going to remain part of England. If, uh, if the abolition of slavery was a chief concern, then you're not going to have slave states remain part of England in order to avoid signing on to a document that accuses King George of the establishment of slavery in the new world. Uh, but to the, to the uh, sort of epistemological point here, we have this, this truckload of evidence as this was their motivation to uh, break away from England. Will we ever know with 100% accuracy what the man on the street in the various colonies was feeling, or the, let alone the woman on the street, or the, the enslaved person on the street? Will we ever know that? No. But to say that the evidence that we have should be overturned, the burden of proof for that kind of argument falls on the person who's doing the revision. And the the uh, the people who are advancing the 1619 project, somewhat cynically in my uh, view, have taken the postmodern position that all history is just a narrative, and we're just going to substitute this new narrative for this old narrative. And if the new narrative doesn't work logically or um, evidentiarily, then that demand itself is a re-articulation re, uh, of the racism inherent in, in the academic process, which values evidence and logic. 
Yeah. Yeah. And thank you for that. Because I think when these discussions happen, my, my fear always is um, you're getting the MSNBC or Fox News three minute wooden yes. version. And these conversations just they just can't take place in that vacuum because um, we should, as citizens of the world, welcome more history books that examine these various periods. Um, and if someone wants to question an official narrative, by all means, let them do it. But um, also to your point, which is, yeah, if you have a gazillion documents arguing one piece, then the onus is on the person to make sure that um, they are, th- that their work is above reproach. And that's where we kind of lose the the, the message here. The, the thing that, I'm, that, that, that I've got in my mind now, as you've, we talked through this is when we come to modern day, right? So we look back at history um, and you, you, um, you're kind of evaluating that. The, the problem with this larger discussion about um, using circular logic or epistemology or whatever is we don't really have a great launching point that we all kind of agree on of where yeah, we're yeah. starting from. And that seems to be part of what you're, what the battle is here is um, at least in the U S is that there's part of the culture that wants to save and preserve their idea of what the U S is. There's a, there's a part of saying, no, 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 you're misreading this. This has been only this. And so we don't, we're, we're actually trying to, argue what the basis point is to start seems to be part of the issue here. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. And to, uh, I, to, to a large degree, that's why I wrote the book. The book is a book about how do you negotiate knowledge? Um, how do you make a claim and then respond to criticism of that claim? And there are some claims that just on their face are untrue if and only if truth is defined as a correspondence with reality. If you begin with the premise that truth is something that is sustained by the passion with which I believe it, then you're going to have a very different process for that public negotiation, you're, you're not going to have a way in which you can separate truth from power. You know, if um, to take it, uh, to go back in history even further, the, um, when Galileo brought forth, when Galileo um, brought forth the, ev- the empirical evidence and logic supporting the Copernican view of um, the sun at the center of, of our, our solar system and the earth revolving around the sun, uh, the church in that day, which was the most powerful institution on earth, uh, did not want to hear it. And most people who were believers did not believe that, that Galileo was saying something true. Uh, if you believe that truth is a correspondence with reality, you have no trouble saying, well, the church was wrong, Galileo was right, because Galileo was making a claim that corresponded with reality. If, on the other hand, truth is a function of power, then the truth of the uh, earth revolving around the sun did not change until enough people came around to that opinion, that before a majority of people came around to the the heliocentric 
version of the world or, or the solar system, then um, it was true that the sun revolved around the earth. And, and to me, that just seems like a nonsensical epistemology. Mm. Yeah. And, and so part of that language we would think about is speak your truth. This is my truth. And yeah. it's interesting because on some level, part of that, 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 that those words, that, that, that phraseology, that thought process, I think comes from a spot to where um, certain groups, maybe women in the workplace, were not recognized as being harassed as much as they potentially were. And so mm-hmm. kind of empowering them to say their truth, which is all, which is kind of a, a longhand way of saying this tells what happened <laughs> or shorthand way of saying yeah. tells what happened. Um, but because the, maybe those people weren't listened to, um, we, to, to kind of empower that thought, they said, speak your truth, speak my truth. Um, and the problem, though, I think, as you're pointing out, is that that then becomes um, instead of let us hear your side of the story, it then becomes this is the only version of acceptable events because it is we've attached the word truth to it which is instead of telling us your interpretation of what happened or what you saw, what you think happened. Um, and so we've kind of meshed those two together um, in a way that it's, it's, it's hard to untangle them now, it seems. Yeah, I th- and I think that's another really good example of it. And I do talk about the Me Too movement in my book. Um, to take probably the clearest example of that, um, when Christine, Christine Blasey Ford, I think I have her name right, um, accused Brett Kavanaugh of sexual assault 30 years previously when they were in high school, I don't think in any way we should not have listened to her. I think that her um, charge was a serious charge. It should have been heard. It should have been assessed on the merits of, of the claim. And it should have been judged true or false uh, on the basis of best evidence and lot best logic. Um, where I part company with the people who defended Blasey Ford is I would say that the critique to critique that claim is not itself oppressive. To say there are holes in her story to note that there is still, to this date, not a shred of verifiable evidence that she and Kavanaugh have ever been in the same place at the same time, and that the burden of proof in any any formal hearing falls on the accuser rather than the accused, is simply to say that the seriousness of a claim does not exempt it from standards of evidence and logic. And I have many, many friends who consider that demand to be a a sort of second assault on Christine Blasey Ford. Right. And and again, this, I think, goes back to my point a minute ago, which is the launching point, which is, would you rather, our society, rather a guilty man walk free or an innocent man go to jail? Right, and that's yeah. kind of that's that's yeah, in, in, in I think that's Blackstone Blackstone uh, axiom. It's better to have ten guilty men go free than one. Um, actually, I think he added it a hundred a hundred um, guilty men go free than one innocent man imprisoned. Yeah, and if you, you, yeah, yeah, I was to say if, if you if you take the 
I'd prefer the guilty to walk free, then that does mean you've raised the burden of proof. You do have to, and, and I mean, I've said this in the podcast before, but I am like, the you know, the punishment in my view for rapists is, is higher than we currently do. So I'm not trying to say people that rape people should get away. Uh, I would make it um, a capital offense. That's neither here nor there. I'm simply saying that, but to, to meet that threshold, there has to be some sort of evidence, evidentiary basis. And because we don't have that, it does raise these questions. And to me, this is the frustration when we get in these discussions, uh, not, not with you, of course, but as society, it's like, well, are we actually even talking about the same thing, right? Because, yeah. I, I, you know, I don't know, and I don't want to cast a wide net here, um, but being a pro-death penalty advocate, um, I, I'm willing to give the harshest penalty to the worstest, to the worst of the worst, okay? So I'm willing to do that. Um, and so to, to say that I would be willing to belittle someone, it's to say, no, 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 no. I'm saying, actually, if it happens and, and you're right, then I would give them the ultimate penalty in this case. But that does come with a certain burden of proof. Um, if you want to send someone to jail for 10 years, 20 years, whatever it is, it still has to have a burden of proof. And so it feels like we can't even agree on that. And to your point um, about the kind of circular, the circularness of this argument is because to question then is an attack. Instead of saying, no, 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 we actually, I want to make this crime, Ryan, at least, I want to make this crime, um, the punishment is so severe that no one, like everyone's afraid of doing it because if you get caught a raping a woman, then what, what the capital punishment is, is severe. And so um, why can we not, you think, the right, the left, the woke, the non-woke, why can they not come together and see that there actually is some commonality, but we have to work on our launch point instead of debating maybe the end result? Yeah, I think there there is commonality. Um and let me just be as clear about this as I can be. I think feminism at its at its heart is a genuinely liberatory movement. The idea that the um a person's biology shouldn't circumscribe their intellectual, moral, or spiritual potentials, I think is is an absolutely it's an absolute instantiation of justice. And I think insofar as um uh, society represses the rights of women, I think we can fairly objectively say that that society is morally inferior to a society that honors those rights. I, I, I realize that moral judgments are always a little bit trickier than, than empirical judgments, but I don't really have a problem making those, making those um, judgments. However, there is a movement in modern feminism, and it comes out of academia, that says that the expectation that women, and this is true of women scholars too, back up their claims with logic and evidence is a patriarchal way of looking at their claims. That uh, Andrea Dworkin, the, the late feminist scholar, uh, once wrote that nothing that she writes is um, is can be. I'm trying to think of her exact words. Nothing that she, nothing that she, none of her claims are refutable by um, rational or logical and evidentiary means, but they are true by virtue of their being believed 
consistently and passionately and verified in the experiences of individual women. And I just don't think there's a, at that point, you're just at an, you're at a, a, an impasse. There's no way to bridge that divide. If, if I say, well, look, Christine Blasey Ford still hasn't demonstrated that she's ever met Brett Kavanaugh, let alone that he sexually assaulted her. And you say, well, you are just re-raping her by, by asking her to do, asking her to come up with evidence. Then there's really no place to go from there. Yeah. And the problem actually extends out further, which is whose passion matters most. Yeah. Right. You know, and so how do you judge that? Yeah. Once you, well, let me, let me start this another way. In a, in a liberal democracy, you assume are going to bring their ideas and their claims to the public. What is the playing field on which those ideas contend with one another? And the traditional answer, and to my mind, the only realistic answer, is the playing field is evidence and logic. Um, if claims are now being brought forward where the 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 support for those claims is that a lot of people believe it or that um, people who have historically been marginalized believe it or that people, the people who believe it, believe it more passionately than the people who are on the other side, then you don't have that give and take. It really is the reason that it's the, the idea to which um, a society or around which a society has been founded. But could you argue that whatever you think of uh, wokeism, um, any idea that the best way to convince people is not through, um, you know, logic, the, the, you think about the um, logos, but uh, but maybe pathos, which is you know using appealing to emotion. Maybe that is actually a more effective way to not to say that you're right, but to convince people because it does seem that the woke movement is quite persuasive to a certain portion yeah. of the country, and they're not appealing to logic as we would define it. They are kind of using that that emotional appeal, and that does seem to resonate. Yeah, it, it's um, but there's a difference between an effective argument and a coherent argument. And you ultimately, passions come and go. Logic and evidence don't. And you really want public issues to be decided on the basis of things that that, um, don't evolve. Um, One of the things the founding fathers were most afraid of is the, is the, um, the passions of the moment overtaking reason and having sort of mob mentality ruling over uh, large numbers of people. And the point of checks and balances that are set up in the Constitution is to make it hard, or if not hard, at least sort of um, slow to get things done. Um, 
Making dramatic changes under the U.S. Constitution is a laborious, time-consuming process. And it should be because people will, will bring forward preposterous ideas based on the passions of the moment. And you want those ideas to get bruised and battered in public exchange so that they don't ultimately take hold for any length of time. But if that process of bruising and battering a preposterous idea has become stigmatized as a form of bigotry, then you you lose that sort of uh, marketplace of ideas justification where the better ideas will ultimately make their way through the process. Earlier, you mentioned something, um, and I've got a book over there. You can't see it, but it's um, the the critical race theory. Their their top papers is a, it's a pretty thick book. Um, and the argument that I've heard is from kind of the pro CRT crowd, which is if you actually read the scholarly work of CRT, you would understand that what they're arguing is not what's being promulgated around at the popular level. Now, I'm just getting started in the book, so I have no idea. But my, my, the question that I have, and you, could you touch on this kind of this seeping down effect? Um, a is that relevant to the discussion? So is it relevant that the scholars are talking here, but everyone else is talking here because where everyone's talking is where everyone's talking. And then B, do you find it to be true that maybe the, the, the proponents at the high level of CRT are actually pushing for something that's just not being heard by the average Joe? Yeah, well, I've read a lot of the original work in critical race theory. Um, and I think there's a lot of bait and switch that goes on in discussions of CRT. Um, the original scholarship, and you get this from uh, people like Kimberly Crenshaw and Richard Delgado, um, they will openly say that their work hinges on the insights of, of Marxism and postmodernism and uh, post-structuralism. And those are lit crit terms and, and Marxism is a sociological term. Um, but when you really look at what they are getting from each of those um, schools of thought, it's um, a means by which to argue that traditional modes of argument are irrelevant to the truth of what we are saying. And if you then look at the way um, the themes of critical race theory have been brought forward after that, after the initial you know, law school versions of it, you'll find a lot of really noxious elements in it. Apart from the bad history, you will find a lot of racial essentialism in it. That is, this is true. This this thing is, that we are, this belief that we are advancing is true. Uh, and all black people know that it's true, even though it's invisible to white people, because black people have cognitive powers that distinguish them from white people. That is That is in itself racist. It says that there are cognitive differences between races and racial categories, if you know anything about anthropology, are they are social constructs. They are 
not hard and fast dividing lines in the human species. Um, the all the American Anthropological Association has a statement about race that goes along with that. The American Society of Physical Anthropologists, I may have butchered their names, also concurs that they're, they're, racial categories are constructs. Um, the the idea that black minds work differently than white minds is appealing to critical race theorists, even though many of them will deny it, because it's a it comes with a built-in narrative of oppression. That is, if you say that black minds to to go to the notorious chart that was put forward by the Smithsonian a couple of years ago, uh, that black minds are not attuned to exactitude. They're not attuned to processing um, mathematical information in the same way that white minds are. If you, if you buy into that, that sort of essentialist thinking, then you can say that the prioritizing of exactitude and the prioritizing of mathematical reasoning is a way of privileging the way white minds work at the expense of the way black minds work. And there you've got your account of why, for example, black kids don't do as well on standardized tests because the entire idea of standardized testing and of getting the correct, the one correct answer in multiple choice questions privileges the way white minds work. Now, that to me is, I'll, I'll just say I find it offensive, but I also see how that, starting from that position, you can justify a lot of what passes as critical race theory. Uh, I think a lot of it, even though it's not acknowledged, comes from um, not Kimberly Crenshaw or Richard Delgado. It comes from another name that hardly ever comes up in CRT discussions, a guy named Leonard Jeffries, who um, was a, a sort of founding scholar in, in, in Africana and black studies, who argued that white people were ice people and black people were sun people who were more in tune to the vibrations of the universe. And therefore they were more insightful about things and less um, aggressive and less mean and nasty and competitive uh, than the ice people were. And it was the ice people, ice people's nature of meanness and nastiness and competitiveness that let them subjugate the sun people to begin with. Now, again, that's loopy. But I think you can see elements of that thinking in the essentialism that you find in critical race theory. And it's really hard to refute that if you begin with the idea of saying that logic and evidence is itself the application of logic, of logic and evidence or the expectation of logical and uh, logical and evidentiary coherence is itself a demand of whiteness. Mm. Let me ask you this. Let me let me see. You can think about that as like no, their no. I, I'm, I'm tracking with you. I'm tracking with you. So here's what I thought of when you said that. Um, 
I would want to say this as a non-woke proponent, but this is someone who wants to be critical of the system. I would say that if you look back, we'll say from World War II forward, um, and you just take the media, the way the media has covered a variety of topics, um, whether it's the topest level and how they covered FDR, JFK, up until Watergate, there is a, I don't want to put terms up, but there is a certain perspective that was given, that was uh, amplified, and that perspective was probably limited of the scope of options available to them at the time. And because of that, there are plenty of questions that we can ask about that period. And I'm not trying to say it's racist or not racist. I'm just saying that, that we just know that they omitted things, the newspapers did, the reporters did, from the reports. Why? That's a separate issue. They did. So it's free now. It's a kind of free game if you want to question some of what was happening then. And then maybe you can get to motives, maybe not. Um, and so would you agree generally with that, that assessment? Yes, right. I would. And, and so, um, I, I think that we're always limited by the what the past provides us sure. as tools for analysis of how we got to the present. Sure. And so I would push that a step further and say, um, and then I've talked about this on the show before. Um, I was born in 85 for your reference. But um, so when the OJ Simpson trial was happening, I remember that. And I didn't understand at the time I was in Louisiana, I went to California, but I didn't understand at the time some of the arguments that were being made about why uh, a black jury might vote this way versus a white jury. None of that made sense to me. Uh, Rodney King didn't really ring a bell to me at that age. Going back though now and knowing how the Los Angeles Times, the media at large, did not cover these issues that were happening in black communities. There, there's a sense in which the 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 the, the woke CRT uh, pendulum has swung too far. But if they would point out those things, see, I think that's where actually the common ground is. If you wanted to say, hey, that some of this police coverage in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s was from a white perspective, and it was it wasn't properly done, maybe it had some racism. I don't think there's really any pushback that can be made. It's just that, to your point about the, the, it's the assault, that you can't question the narrative, you, this kind of circular logic. So is there, is there common ground that we could find, like just by high level picking apart these kind of issues and saying stuff like that? Yeah, well, first I should say that O.J. Simpson's a sore topic for me because I slept underneath a poster of O.J. Simpson when I was growing up. Was oh, sorry. I didn't know that. <laughs> I, used to, I used to write the number 32 on the back of my sneakers when I because I oh, well. just idolized him. He, he had sprinter speed. He was graceful. He was elegant. I mean, I just I loved him. And I was willing to go into that trial to say maybe the dog did it. Mm -hmm. But I think the preponderance of evidence – indicates that O.J. did kill his wife and Ron Golden. Um, if other evidence came forward indicating that it was strained uh, or that there were other viable subjects, I'd embrace that in a sure. heartbeat. Um, but to your, to your broader point, um, I think that we always need to to use a, a sort of hackneyed phrase, think critically about the information we're being provided and look at the biases that might be built into that information. Look at the perspectives that have provided us with the data that we're using to analyze the question. Um, 
And I don't think that's especially problematic. What is problematic, however, is when you retroactively attempt to alter what happened in order to suit the predispositions of of our time. So to take an example um, that's been in the news recently, uh, the Tulsa massacre. Um, Mm -hmm. that was really not taught when I was in school. And it, uh, I honestly didn't know about it until within the last decade. The Tulsa massacre was a, an attack on black businesses in Tulsa, um, Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, which was horrific and, and people died and it was clearly racially, racially motivated um, but here's the, the, here's my qualm having said that it is portrayed in, um, documents like the 1619 project as the organized systematic destruction of black wall street. Well, no, it isn't. It's an attack on a number of black owned businesses in one area, Tulsa, Oklahoma, to call those businesses the Black Wall Street sets up a parallel between that Black Wall Street and Wall Street, which indicates this was this area of stores in um, Tulsa, Oklahoma, was in some way affecting the launching of businesses across the world and funding things beyond what they were doing, that they were selling and buying stocks, that 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 act crippled the economic prospects of black people for generations across the nation. And that isn't what happened. And I think, frankly, it's condescending to say that the fact that black people own businesses in in Oklahoma um, equates with what was going on in lower Manhattan at the same time. It, it says, well, isn't it cute they had their own businesses? That was their Wall Street. Uh, that's not what happened in as horrific as the actions in um Tulsa, Oklahoma were, I believe it was 1931. It is not the destruction of the Black Wall Street. Um, And what's more, and uh, this is as far as I'll go with it, I don't think that the fact that that incident wasn't widely uh, known um, takes away from anyone's feelings about the perniciousness of racism during that period. Uh, in other words, the Tulsa massacre, as horrific as it was, doesn't tell us anything that we didn't already know about racism in the first half of the 20th century. It was bad, it was systemic, and it retarded the socioeconomic and spiritual possibilities of an entire group of people. Uh, knowing that this other thing happened, the Tulsa massacre, doesn't really add to that. It's not like people who didn't know about it 
couldn't appreciate the evil of racism in the first half of the 20th century in the United States. I will link to, we had Chad O. Jackson on the podcast, um, and he has a couple documentaries out. The most recent one is called Uncle Tom 2, where they talk about um, that incident specifically in the movie. So I'll link to that episode in the show notes for listeners. Okay. No, no, that's helpful. And again, I think I said this earlier, I'll I'll say it again for uh, one more time, is that these discussions, um, they, they frustrate me at the high popular media level because it's almost as if neither side can can take any little nuance and go, Oh, well, you know, actually we're not actually arguing about this or this because part of the narrative that you hear is, is from the woke side, which is that the, the non woke is afraid to have history ever reexamined, ever looked at again, ever questioned again. And I don't think that's the stance of people who are objecting to wokeism. I'm sure there's some of course, but I don't think that's, that's obviously not your stance. It's not my stance. It's not many people's stances who are saying, no, no, you can't question it. saying that we just have to talk about what we're questioning, how we can do that, what the, what the purpose there, There's other questions that, that come along with saying uh, we want to look at something from history. Um, yeah. Revising history is how historians make a living. <laughs> <laughs> um, the process by which history is revised is um, scrupulous. And the burden of proof, to go back to that phrase we've been using a lot, is always on people doing the revising. Mm-hmm. And a major revision of American history, such as the one suggested by the 1619 Project, would require a major introduction of new information to sort of upset the apple cart that's been moving along for all of these decades. Okay. As we mentioned at the beginning, the book is I Feel, Therefore I Am, The Triumph of Woke Subjectivism. I think we've covered the various potential objections and thought processes. So now, folks, you're free to go listen. I mean, you're free to go read the book. I don't know if it's audible or not, but you're free to go read the book, uh, check it out, and dig into it. What's that? I hope they do. Yeah, exactly. Uh, go, go, go check out the book. We'll link to that in the show notes. Where else do you want us to send people to, Mark? Um. You can go to my website, which is markgoldblack.com. Um, stay away from my house. Uh, I don't want them coming here. Um, <laughs> but I have I have other books other out. Books on, I have novels for adults, novels for kids. I have political books out. Uh, if you Google me, you'll find me. You'll find my work. But I I enjoy talking about these issues apart from just trying to sell things. So I, I don't want to make a big deal out of that. Okay. We will link to your website in the show notes. Okay, Mark, I've really enjoyed this. Best of luck in the book. I've enjoyed it too. Thank you for your time. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five-star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com helps keep the show going and ad-free. Thank you so much.